Well, kia ora team, it's Brad here, aka Bogsy, and I can't believe we've reached chapter 15 and the finale of season one of the podcast. and honestly, I'm excited beyond words to share this conversation with you today. Uh, for this episode, I had the absolute pleasure of sitting down and talking with one of New Zealand's greatest treasures, and her name is Helen Thayer. If you've never heard of Helen, you're about to be blown away, because I was. Helen has lived an incredible life with adventures you will not believe. She was named one of the greatest explorers of the 20th century by National Geographic, and has been a pioneer in various different expeditions. I'm just going to list some of her achievements, because they're absolutely fantastic. The first one, first woman to travel alone to any of the world's poles when she skied at aged 50 to the magnetic North Pole without dog sled, snowmobile, resupply or support. Just her and her dog, Charlie. She was the first woman to walk 4,000 miles across the Sahara Desert from Morocco to the Nile River. In another world's first, Helen walked 1,600 miles across the Gobi Desert at age 63, kayaked over 2,200 miles of the Amazon River. Uh, she was a part of a unique study in the wild where she lived near a wolf den in the Arctic Circle for a year and studied their habits and, and their social constructs. Uh, she's won the American National Luge Championship and represented three countries in international track and field. She's climbed some of the world's highest mountains and was even a close friend of Sir Edmund Hillary. Honestly, when you speak with Helen and you listen to her story, you'd think it's a movie, but it's all true. She even managed to walk Death Valley, one of the hottest places on earth, just two years ago at, believe this, aged 80. She's spoken at both the White House, the Russian Kremlin, and written several books detailing her adventures. If anything, Helen is one of the most down-to-earth, kind, and motivating people, or persons, I should say, I've ever had the privilege of chatting with. Take your time with this episode and enjoy hearing Helen's journey. Well, welcome to another deep dive here on the podcast and as I said in the introduction, I'm so honoured and just, I'm stoked to have Helen there joining us, Helen. Thanks for hopping on. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. It's funny that we had to do that because we've just been speaking for the last 40 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's It feels like we just should have carried that one on. <laughs> yes, we had a good old Kiwi conversation, that's for sure. I think we've covered most most subjects that are important to a Kiwi. Isn't that the cool thing, though? I mean, as this is a podcast, but I mean, we just got to chat live for forty odd minutes, which will not, you know, which is something a lot of people miss when it comes to interviews or conversations. They just want to get straight to the point. No, this is no, this is nice. I I, I really enjoyed just uh, talking to a, a fellow Kiwi and hearing the accent, and because I miss that over here, I, I really miss uh, I miss that Kiwi accent and just the way we approach things and. I enjoy my life over here too, very much. And as I've, I've said to Brad, I have a lot of opportunities of, uh, living here, but I'm still a Kiwi and uh, Kiwi uh, is very important to me. And the, the whole the whole range of, of subjects and ideas uh, with dealing with New Zealand is very important to me. Would you say you've lived in, well, away from New Zealand more than you, or longer than you've lived in New Zealand? Well, yes, I have. I've gone, of course, visit fairly frequently, but actually a permanent residence, I've been more in this country than any other country. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, because where, where, where exactly are you at the moment? I'm about 50 miles east of Seattle in Washington State, over on the West Coast. It's the, oh. uh, 
it's the my husband was a helicopter pilot and uh he is now passed on due to an accident a short time ago but um he chose this he thought he'd bring his new zealand bride because he's american born thought he'd bring his new zealand bride to the northwest where he had already done a lot of flying here but he yeah. thought the northwest of america was more like new zealand because he and so he really loved New Zealand. He really, and, but it's only because of his career that we even came here. And, uh, but he thought that the Northwest would be better to bring a queue because he came actually from Needles, California, which is in the desert. And he oh, didn't, wow, yeah. He didn't think it was a good idea to take his new, brand new New Zealand bride into the desert and then <laughs> to a place where she's all, and it's, it was a good choice because it is beautiful here. So I live actually, I think in the most beautiful part of the United States, it's green like New Zealand, and we have the mountains and the trees and the wide open spaces and the uh, and Washington State. Of course, a lot of people think it's desert, but it's actually cut in half by the mountains. The western half, where I live, is very New Zealand-like. The eastern half is really hot uh, desert, and I, you know, a place I like to visit, but not a place I, I want to live. Want to stay long, no. <laughs> Yes, but you cross like mountains that are around, um, well, it's a Cascade Range. The mountains there can be 10,000 feet high, where I've done a lot of mountain climbing and hiking, but you have to cross the mountains, and it's a completely different climate. But I'm fortunate. I, my husband, he, it was a good choice. So yeah, I, yeah. I married, a, married in New Zealand when I was 23, so that's a little while ago now. So I, I have been here quite a while. Yeah, only a little, only a little while ago. Not that long ago. Um, <laughs> Um, but you, you live on a farm though, don't you? Yes. Yes. I have a farm where actually we had a farm down the valley. We owned the entire valley and then we sold it and then moved up and basically, uh, we sort of more or less own a mountain now. Um, <laughs> it's a smaller farm, but it's overlooking the North Cascade mountains. Uh, and, uh, we were going to move back to New Zealand, but this property uh, came, came up for sale and it's just, uh, it overlooks beloved Cascades where we've hiked hundreds and hundreds of miles and I've climbed over 600 peaks in the Cascade Mountains and it just, uh, it was a good fit, a good fit. But, but I, I'm a, I'm definitely a Kiwi country girl at, ha at heart. Oh, that's good. Good to, yeah, I mean, from, from talking to you already, I, I can tell you've not lost that. You haven't become, no. you haven't, you haven't Americanized, if that's even a term. No, 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 I'm definitely Kiwi. Uh, from head to toe, through and through, and always will be. I'm proud of it. I'm very proud of it. In fact, sometimes I, I might brag a wee bit too much when rugby is going well and the America's Cup is going <laughs> well. When they're not going well, well, people don't hear much about it, but when it's going well, they do tend to hear a lot about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we said, it's either it's either the referees or it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, when New Zealand when it loses on the rugby field internationally, it's always the referees. <laughs> Always a referee. <laughs> I tell you what, the United States have got a pretty, uh, pretty nice looking team at the moment. They're not, they're not looking too they're, bad. They're coming along, but I hope they don't come on too much. It's okay. They can come in second. I'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's yeah. um, funny. Uh, there's a limit here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think I, th I don't think the All Blacks would be in any danger of uh, being usurped by the United States just yet. <laughs> but mind you, over here in America. Rugby players are really admired. Um, oh, yeah. They thought of as being the toughest and the and the mostest of everything, fierce and tough and strong and, and all those masculine things because they do it all without all of that gear. And yeah. to 
reckons that's an amazing thing. You know, just can't imagine anybody going out and crash, smash and bash without all of that gear. Because then you switch to American football, which I, I also follow that too. But, you know, from the helmets on down through the entire... The yeah, chest plates outfit. and all sorts. Yeah, it's, it's just amazing what they wear. Even flak, uh, flak jackets where they can, uh, for, their, for their upper body, uh, underneath those jerseys. And it's amazing what they're wearing. And then you turn to rugby and it's like, my goodness. So, so they're, they're, rugby players are greatly admired in this country. Well, um, we'll take that compliment. We are the tough. We're the toughest. <laughs> yes, of course. Naturally, we're Kiwi. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and that's 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 the thing. I mean, Kiwis. Ki- yeah, the Kiwi. You know, we're Kiwis. We we can go out there and do anything. And you have. I mean, the experiences well, you've had. People will ask me, "Why do you do this? Why do you walk across four thousand miles across the Sahara? Why do you walk to the North Pole? Why do you do this and so forth?" And my answer very often is say, "Well." I'm a New Zealander. That's what we do. We are known to go out into the outdoors. And I always say, you know, if there's a very nice trail going to the top of the mountain, the Kiwi probably doesn't take it. If it's a shortcut, you know, <laughs> yeah, we take the shortcut. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas other people will take that lovely trail and take longer, but the Kiwi that takes the shortcut and it might be rough and tumble, but they'll get there. Yeah, I love that. That's that's that is exactly what it's like. I mean, I grew up down in the Coromandel, and yeah, any chance you get to run down the big sand dunes and you know, do yeah. whatever it might be, you get outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're more uh, very, we're very. Uh, I believe as a culture, I've been to thirty six countries and you know, I've travelled a lot of the world, and I, I find that the New Zealanders are, they are. It's true. They're very outdoor, uh, in a rugged. Uh, you know, they get out and get it done and more of a rugged um, personality in a very good way. Uh, they take on the wilderness and take on challenges. I think, I think Kiwis are, are very good at taking on And I find that in my fellow Kiwis, uh, there's a lot of Kiwis around the Seattle area. And I find that it's sort of a, a national trend among all of us, I believe. That's something that I've seen that stands out quite prominently. If- case in point of the things you have done and I want to get into them but even just the fact you grew up in New Zealand what was growing up a Kiwi like for you where, where did you grow up what was your I childhood up, like I grew up on a farm a large farm and sheep cattle and dairy and uh, um, my dad was a, a, a extremely good farmer and, and but they were both very athletic and enjoyed the mountains as well we would go down and and uh, climb, uh, then it was called Mount Egmont, now it's Taranaki. And uh, that was my first mountain when I was nine years old. And, oh, wow. Uh, and so I, I wanted to be a mountain climber, like my parents liked mountain climbing as, as a hobby. And I wanted to, so finally at nine years old, I was given permission to go, as long as I carry my own pack. I couldn't yeah, carry yeah. Them, They told me you can just simply stay home. And uh, the rules were very strict, so that was that. But I made it. As a nine-year-old legs, <laughs> I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it today. They turned <laughs> into to lead halfway up, but halfway up, my dad said, you know, it only takes one step at a time to reach the summit. And my mother kept saying, imagine yourself, see yourself as a picture. Get a picture in your mind of yourself standing on the summit. And you'll make it. Mm-hmm. And those two pieces of advice have been the best advice I've ever had in my life. It's carried me on through many expeditions and now it's something that I really use. It's it's a good way to look at it. One step at a time, you reach your goal. And 
and then and visualize yourself at the end. But on my 80th birthday, um, I'm now 82, and on my 80th birthday, I decided to walk the full length of Death Valley. And um, no one had done the complete journey before, but uh, some other people had tried it and hadn't done the full journey. And I thought, well, you know, my husband had planned, and I had planned that he and I would do this together. But he was involved in an accident and, and he didn't make it. So I thought I'm going to continue to do this journey in, in his memory. And so I went and I did it alone and I, I completed it. I started on my 80th birthday. And, uh, but halfway through, I struck an episode of food poisoning. My day oh, food had gone moldy because Death Valley is very hot and it's, it's very, you know. One of the hottest places on earth, isn't it? Yes, that's right. And so I, and it went, and I wasn't aware of this. And I was <laughs> these things and I became really ill. I had a temperature of 104 degrees Fahrenheit, that is. And um, I was really ill. And I had to make up my mind. And the rangers came out, because this is a national park. And the rangers like to check on anybody doing this because it's considered crazy to walk the length of Death Valley. Nobody had done it before. Is it? Here's a woman. She's 80 years old. This 80 years old. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're 80 years old. You don't be out here at all. One of them said, <laughs> it's like, oh, please give me a break. Hey, and I'm so, a Kiwi. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Kiwi. I can do it. I know it. And so, <laughs> in fact, one, one of the rangers asked me, he said, why are you out here doing this? I said, well, I'm a Kiwi. This is what we do. Yes. And he just kind of looked at me and said, a Kiwi, I think that's in New Zealand. I said, you got it right. And mm. so, but they wanted to take me to the hospital. But I said, no, because if I leave, I might not restart. And right. I know if I can do what I've done all my life, one step at a time, and I'm going to see myself standing at the other end of this, this journey. Well, I did. For the next six days, I fought through that. And in, in the beginning, it was like 100 feet. I'd, visualize, I'd, I'd focus on something about 100 feet ahead, and I'd walk to it, stop. Then I'd focus again. And, walk, and I did that. And then grad, that was the, the first three days were sort of like that. Then over the next three days, I was gradually recovering. I never did fully recover because as they, they even sent a doctor out to me. <laughs> Park service were really, they thought I was going to die. Look at you causing trouble. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Here's another one of those Kiwis causing us trouble. (laughs) So, but a doctor came out and and he said, well, since you insist on going on, uh, understand uh, it's going to take a long time to recover over this. And I said, that's fine. I'll make it. Well, I made it. And of course I I hadn't completely, but I did recover enough to, to finish it. And I did it. And, but I, I, it's one step at a time. I can yeah. think one step at a time. And all those way back at nine years old, I learned that. And, uh, and I, I could see myself standing at the end. I kept that picture in my mind. I never let that picture get away. And, and when it was tough, you know, because obviously I, I mean, I was vomiting and I was, I, I, I was a mess. Uh, <laughs> it was a mess, yeah. but, um, I wanted to do it and I just felt as though it was no, I didn't have, I didn't have to do it. It was my personal choice to do it, but I love a challenge. Also, that's something else that drives me in my life. I realized that when I uh, skied alone to Magnetic North Pole, I, when everything was, all my food and most of my food was blown away at the end, I had seven days to go and I had five walnuts for each of the seven days and hardly any water because most of my stove fuel had gone in the storm. That's unbelievable. And, um, 
now I'm, I have to fight starvation, dehydration. But then I realized then, as I sat in my tent, figuring out now, okay, the storm's gone by, taken most of my food and just about all of my fuel. Really, I should call for the plane to come and get me because I was in radio contact with base camp. Right. And I thought, no, 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 no. This is a challenge of a lifetime. I'm going to go for this. And I realized when I thought about that afterwards, that as I sat in that tent thinking about all the, all the implications and the complications of going forward for those last seven days, because I'd been out there something like 23 days, and um, I realized that I wasn't unhappy in, that, in those moments of figuring out my next plan. I, it was exciting to me. I, this was a challenge. And yeah. I realized after that journey was over, part of me is driven by challenge. And yeah. put a challenge in front of me and I'll go for it. But if it's kind of easy and wishy-washy, well, you know, it could wait for another day. So, you know, you learn a lot about yourself. And I was 50 years old when I did that journey. So and people thought I was way too old to do that then. So goodness knows what they're saying now. And I'm just at 80. At 80. And I'm not finished yet. After I'm only, I'm only two years uh, later on now. I'm only, I figure I'm not very, uh, I have excellent health. I still have 20-20 eyesight and uh, 100% health. So I'm in fine shape. I'm not ready to uh, tip over yet. No, you're not ready to throw in the towel just yet. No, no, I've got places to go and things to do. Yeah, yeah. I I like to walk. For instance, when we, my husband and I walked 4,000 miles across the Sahara, we walked all the way. We led our camels. They carried our gear and water, but we walked all, we're walkers, not, not, and riding a camel is such a. Very uncomfortable, I can imagine. Like a horse, you go back and forth, frontwards and backwards. Yeah. So like oh, goodness gracious. It's I easy. can't believe that. I mean, the magnetic North Pole journey. I mean, oh my gosh, even in my head, we've got so much to unpack, and like, it's so exciting. But I mean, that's one of the journeys that is, well, you would say is what not put you on the map or anything like that, but it's probably one of the toughest ones you've done, would you say? Yes. Um, it was the hardest journey I've ever taken on emotionally in out of respect for the polar bears because I was living in polar bear. <clears throat> it was like um, uh, Central, you know, Grand Central Station, North Pole City, downtown rush hour. And <laughs> actually seven, seven confrontations for them. Now I admire them. They're beautiful animals. I truly admire them. But mercy, I could <laughs> I was getting really tired of having to deal with them all the time because it was just uh, because they do hunt and kill humans for food. And you know wow. that the very last sound that you might hear in your life might be the crunching of your own skull because that's how they kill their victims. They hunt seals and they crush their skulls to kill them. Well, that you know, that's not a particularly pleasant thought to have in your mind when you're, you know, and I had the, I was as close as six feet from them. And certainly I had a firearm and a flare gun, but no, it wasn't quite, and plus, plus it's against the law to shoot a polar bear unless it's strictly in self-defense. And that means it has to be just a few feet away. And then it's yeah. really, you know, I had a flare gun, flares dropping, flares at his feet, um, push them back. Plus my dog, Charlie. Yeah, and that's what I was about to say. You're Charlie, your faithful companion. Oh, but yes, I mean, for context, that people that don't know how did this journey even come about how did you go and decide i'm going to go and walk to the magnetic north pole and and you just you 
your dog Charlie. And was it twenty? How how many days? Twenty seven days. Where, where did that even? How did that even cross your mind? Well, I was standing on on top of of the peak um, uh, of peak communism in Tajikistan, which is it's uh, just under twenty seven thousand feet, about twenty six thousand feet or so. And you're looking you're looking at China on one side, and Afghanistan on the other side, and Tajikistan on the other. And uh, because I've climbed many high mountains around the world, and this was one of them. And as I stood on that mountain, it was a beautiful summit day. And I could see into these countries as I did a 360 degree view. And I realized how many people in this world have had the opportunity and the absolute honor of being able to take all of this in. You know, there are not many people when you think about it. No. And up to that point, I'd been all in a lot of places, climbed a lot of mountains and take a lot of photos. And I love to write, so I wrote copious notes. But I'd take them all home, put them on the shelf to gather dust and go off somewhere else. And, <laughs> yeah. and I thought, you know, it's time to share something. I need to share this. And who best to share with it is kids. Yeah, and absolutely. Schools and, 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 and encourage them to get out. And so um, then um, we were about an hour on the summit, but then a storm came in. It actually took us three weeks to get off the mountain. And during that time, I thought of the name Adventure Classroom. And I could take the four corners of the world into the classroom via my expeditions. And, and, uh, and, and then, of course, I came off the mountain and, was, and, and I talk, talked to my husband, who's a helicopter pilot and who's used to his own adventures too, a very adventuresome person. And, and so I talked to him about this and we thought about, you know, I haven't walked any of the world's poles. And uh, that's be different and new. Just as you, as you do. <laughs> yeah. And so I decided, well, which pole? There are four major poles, the two geographics, the north and south, which are really mathematical uh, calculations with all the lines of longitude meet at the top and bottom of the world. But then there are the magnetic poles, which are the ones we really use for navigation. It's where mm. the magnetic needle on your compass points to. Right. And so I thought, well, how about the north magnetic pole? Because in addition to the, the navigational challenge, because you can't use a magnetic compass to go there because it's useless, because you're within right. the magnetic field. So I thought, and also it's where the polar bears live, an animal that I had always admired. I'd seen them in, in the zoo, and my goodness, magnificent animals, and what a wonderful thing to go out among them. Well, of course, then I was probably reminded, well, you know, they do eat humans. Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how lovely we're talking, but... <laughs> well, I'm not certainly going to go, go, go walk up to one scratch and buy his little ear and say, hi, honey, I'm here. Yeah, so I yeah, this would be very serious. But the challenge was there. And just think, if I can learn to live with polar bears on their terms, think of the message I can bring back, not only walking across the frozen Arctic Ocean. I wasn't on land. I was on this layer of ice over the ocean. If you fall through, you're going to drown. Mm. And being alone, you're not going to get out by yourself. And so, and then there were the polar bears. And, and if I don't, if I can get through there and not have to harm them, they don't harm me. What a lesson I can bring to kids. Hey, you can learn to live with dangerous animals on their terms and you're okay. Yeah. And so it was all fitted very nicely. And then there was the Inuit culture in the North that I could bring into the program. And that they're wonderful people. I call them the, uh, the masters of Arctic survival. And I actually lived with them um, for about a month so they could teach me many things about the polar bears. Because as I always say, if I'd met a polar bear at 25,000 feet on some mountain, I know I would have had the wrong map. So <laughs> yes, you would have. <laughs> it's important to learn something about these animals if I'm going out yeah. of the mountain. 
<laughs> because planning, that's another thing I tell my audiences when I'm out motivational speaking, because I do a lot of motivational speaking. I tell people, you know, a goal without a plan is only a dream. Right. You have to plan. Uh, you have this glorious idea of something that you've just thought of. It's the most wonderful thing. I'm going to do this. Right now, how do you do it? Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Well, you better stop and think about it before you take the first step. Yeah, and before you lose the dream too, right? That's right. And so um, planning and planning and planning. And then when everything is in place, you've got everything. And of course, on this journey, I was really a a woman pioneer of sorts because there wasn't any equipment available. No other woman had ever walked to any of the world's poles alone before. Mm. And... um, Mine had gone by dog sled to the North Pole, but with a group of seven or eight other men. And she was the only woman. And there was dog sleds pulled by dogs. Well, I was going to ski alone, pulling my own sled. Yeah, you walked it, yeah. Yeah, so it's a very different experience. So I had to learn. I had to to find someone to design the sled and then the right materials to make one that doesn't break at minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit uh, because everything is very brittle at those temperatures. And then what sort of clothing I found, I couldn't wear anything that was waterproof because ice forms on the inside. That doesn't go to work. So everything has to be very porous. So all of these things had to be learned. So that's why I I call myself a a pioneer of sorts because I had to start off from ground zero and simply figure it out myself, which Mm -hmm. of course made it a more attractive challenge because I was learning so much. I didn't just pick up a, uh, pick up information from here and there from other people's experiences and put it together and here I You go. went and did it. Yeah, I had to actually learn it and then go find out if this is going to work. And it better work because I knew that if my plan went wrong, I wouldn't come back alive. That was mm. all. I'd either go through the ice into the ocean or these um, hurricane force storms would sweep me away or a polar bear would get me. So, um, and then uh, I actually... Uh, Uh, bought an Inuit dog. Uh, I called him Charlie. He had no name. He was an Inuit dog used to pulling those big uh, Inuit sleds. Inuits used to be called Eskimo, but we don't do that anymore. Uh, That is a a white man's term, not very respectful, means meat eater. Now they're called the Inuit people. Uh, It means first people, which is far more appropriate. Mm. And they are a, mar- a marvelous, they're a marvelous I- I- indigenous group of people. I have so many friends up there. That's amazing. And, oh, yeah, they're just extraordinary. And they, they survive. They survive that climate. It, it's amazing. Because it's so, cold. That is very, very, very cold. I mean, it's, New, oh, yeah. in New Zealand, it, it, we're complaining it, if it's one degree. It got down to minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit, but it really went lower because that's as far as the thermometer went at bottom. Oh, really? Oh my goodness. And I looked at the thermometer. I thought, well, gee, it's too bad. I can't really find out what it really is. And then I thought, well, perhaps I really don't want to know because this is bad. <laughs> I'm cold. And I, oh, you know, that, that's yeah. too cold. it's really very cold. <laughs> but then, you know, sometimes if you 
just don't think about it. And I had nine frostbitten fingers and I, I fixed that very nicely. I figured if you put a pair of liner gloves on and just don't look at them anymore, pretend they're not, <laughs> they're not there. That's one way to fix it. You had nine frostbitten fingers. Yes, I had one little one little little finger that was normal. The rest of them were frostbitten and they were all bloody and messy. And when I picked up my stove, of course, they were oozing. I, I don't I don't mean to, to gross your audience out, but they were all oozing and, and they would stick to the stove. Then oh, I'd you've grossed use, me out. It's okay. <laughs> I'd have to use saliva to get my fingers off my stove. <laughs> so it was, you know, so we, we shouldn't go into that one too much. That's pretty gross. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the reality of traveling because, I mean, people hear of these adventures, Magnetic Pole, Sahara Deserts, but that's, that's the glory. But that's there's a lot of... Um... It's no good sitting there feeling sorry for yourself. My fingers are stuck to my stove. Well, I have to do something about this. Where <laughs> like, did you sleep? Where, where? I slept in a tent. I had my tent and I, I slept in a sleeping bag. And um, Charlie, I had him with his chain anchored. See, now he was an Inuit dog. He'd never slept on anything but ice in his entire life. Uh, they have no shelter. They're fed seal, frozen seal meat. They don't even have water. They just chew ice for water. Wow. And so I called him Charlie. And, um, and, well, as the expedition went on, he, he eventually came into the tent and was sleeping mostly on my sleeping bag. But, <laughs> as uh, dogs do. <laughs> in the beginning, I had him outside and said so he'd be my early warning polar bear system so that he would warn me of any approaching bears because he was a polar bear dog. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the Inuit village. Wow. And, um, and he really, seven times, he dealt with polar bears with me. One time he did actually save my life. That one, I believe, would have got me. Well, what was that one about? What was that story? Well, we were coming uh, through uh, an area and uh, the ice was extremely rough. And we came to this great, in the Arctic Ocean, the Arctic Ocean is covered by a layer of ice uh, from inches to many th many feet thick, depending on, because it's getting thinner now. But yeah, of course. It was many feet thick, depending on the age of the ice. And there's also very, where it's big, like big, if you can imagine big ice pans, a big, big, uh, big pans of ice, uh, sort of like a lot of pancakes all over the ocean. But when yeah. they crash together and smash their edges, they form to upward to rise upward to form ridges and big chunks of ice. It's very, very rough in place, terribly rough. It's not like going to the South Pole. South yeah, Pole right. is a cinch in comparison. Um, this is very rough. So we came to this very rough area, and this big, big, uh, it had been actually an iceberg that had been trapped in the winter ice. It was about 20, 30 feet high. Just about to go around it, and Charlie stopped and, and looked straight ahead, and he was growling, warning me there was a bear on the other side. So I was out of that sled harness and out of my skis in a hurry and waited to see yeah. what was happening. And then the largest polar bear I've ever seen, a male bear, stepped out, paused a moment and raced straight past me and, and whipped that 160-pound sled over as though it was a tiny toothpick. He actually attacked my sled. Oh then my he started, turned toward me. Well, then, of course, I pressed the release button on Charlie's collar. He raced out of his collar to that bear and grabbed him by his right rear heel and hung on as he was always he had always done all of his life yeah and now the bear had forgotten about me he's trying to get this black fur dog off his heel so round and round they went in these tight little circles till finally the bear 
Toro, he very power. He was very. These bears are enormously powerful. They're huge, aren't they? Yeah, very about eight hundred pounds. Very very fast too. And he was at least that. He was very large. We tore away from Charlie. Now, of course, they're race, both racing off. Charlie's chasing the bear, racing off across the ice. Charlie's having the most wonderful bear chase of his life, of course. Oh, my goodness. He's loving he it. <laughs> and I'm standing there surprised that I was even alive at this point. Yeah. And finally, a half hour later, finally, Charlie came back. And I was, I was so, uh, oh, I was so happy to see him. I was really worried that I might not see him again even, but... There he came back, but he, he did his job. And and then there were other times there was another bear and the cubs, he kept her back. And, uh, and you know, and then I, of course, I had my flare gun firing flares out as fast as I could. And tried, try, in the beginning, I tried firing warning shots over the overhead and I soon realized what a silly thing this is. These bears must be laughing at me because the yeah. ice is never silent, it's moving. So it's right. cracking and popping. It sounds like a lot of rifle shots most of the time. Sometimes, I'm sure they're not going to know the difference. <laughs> no. Yeah, my silly, my silly, my rifle shots, I'm talking about warning them, no. Besides, you don't, you can't scare a polar bear. They're at the top of the food chain. They have no reason to be afraid of anything. Mm. And, and they aren't. They just, they, they really are amazing. It's an amazing experience to stand out there with a bear staring at you straight you know, you're eye to eye and you're, you know, it's just, it's pretty amazing. Um, it scared me half to death, but. Um, oh, I bet it did scare anyone half to death. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people say, oh, I was, they tell me how brave I am. No, no, no. It was nothing to do about bravery. It was a matter of, I discovered that bravery is all about how do you handle your fear. Right. You're going to be afraid if you're human at all. If, I, if you're not if you're not afraid of a polar bear, you'd have to be insane. Yeah, and yeah. If you're anywhere near sane, which of course some people do question that, if you're going to walk to the polar bear, polar bears, is she sane? Well, that's a question. <laughs> is she, for is she crazy? Day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a question for another day. But we'll pass over on that one. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> won't delve into that subject. Too no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, but it's all about how do you handle your fears. Uh, for instance, are you going to panic? Are you going to remember what you've been taught or how to deal with this situation? Because even in my planning, I would sit alone and just think of all the scenarios that could happen to me if I was approached by a polar bear. I did this ever before I left home. So I was very well rehearsed in my own mind. And so I did. that's why I didn't panic. I, because a moment of panic would have done me in. Mm. Because you cannot turn your back and you can't run. You're done. Mm. Yeah. Was, uh, 35 miles an hour for the polar bear there's no way and yeah. so um uh, so it's just about all about how do, how you handle your fears um what are you thinking at the time can you force yourself to continue to think clearly without panicking um can you re you know force yourself to remember all of those things that you know you must do under these circumstances and it's the same as when a storm comes through and the ice is breaking up all around you. At one point, uh, you know, that, that ice can turn into ice cubes. Yeah. And <clears throat> if you get dumped into the ocean, uh, the currents yeah. uh, uh, can carry you. I do know of a friend of mine who tried the same journey and uh, she was she went through the ice and was swept under the ice, a sled and all. And it was as though she just disappeared. Wow. So 
it's a, a very very dangerous journey but um but i made it you know one day at you a made time. it yeah how, how long did it take you <clears throat> it was uh, 27 days right the court 27 days of hell in many ways <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, how, how did you know that you'd reached the pole? Like, was there a, is, is there a, is there a literal pole? I mean, excuse my not knowing, but how do you know you've actually reached, is it GPS? Well, that, how do you... It's a very logical question. Sometimes my, one of the bits today, I say, oh, there's a barber pole there. I just, I just went for that. that Go get pole. a haircut. <laughs> no, you have to navigate your way there. Um, of course, the, pole, the magnetic north pole moves. It's an interesting place. And uh, it, it, it actually moves an elliptical, uh, an elliptical uh, um, um, route each day. Uh, and it can go about 50 miles north and 50 miles south and you're in, you try for the center. And um, so you navigate your way there uh, with a GPS and, uh, and I used um, Inuit methods of navigation because your compass isn't doing you much good. And then even your watch at that at those latitudes, you point the hour hand at the at the hand, you know, at the sun and that between that and the and the numbers and so forth. You've got north and south. So it's all of these methods that you're using. Navigation is quite a challenge to to get to this one. And what I wanted to do was to circumnavigate the entire entire magnetic north pole, pole area because mm. I want this to be an educational project for kids at schools. And so. Um, so, so it's just a matter of navigation, and uh, just get there, and then. Um, uh, and I, I was fortunate too that um, a plane taking geologists north, uh, in the north, flew over me at my most northerly position too, and that was, that, that was the first human that Charlie, my dog, yeah, yeah. just about a month. Oh, that was exciting to see people. Oh, I'm really not there. You feel very detached from the rest of the world when you're out there. Uh, I can imagine. There's just nothing. There's just nothing. <laughs> you just, yeah. uh, it's just uh, you and the ice and the weather and the bears and that's about it. Yeah. What do you do to keep yourself? I would say sane, but you know, how do you keep your head in the head in the moment when, especially when you don't have people around and you can't just make a phone call and. Well, it's very easy to lose track of time and the date, even the day. So the. Uh, the routine is, I, for me, I, I'm ready to start. I've got my skis on. This is on this particular journey. Got my, and this actually any expedition, even walking across the Sahara or the Gobi or anywhere, or right. even, the, even, and even Death Valley. You're ready to start your day. You're going to set out now walking. Well, and so first of all, you I say the day. I say Monday, the 1st of November and the year. Okay, I've mm. said the day, the date, and the year, mm. and even the time, mm. and then I start. And then that fixes it in my mind for that day. I'm aware of which day I'm doing this on. And then, otherwise, if, if you don't, you just, especially in uh, the Arctic regions there, in the, in the Antarctic, it's the same way. Day and night become the same when it becomes 24 hours of daylight. Yeah, so true. Nothing to tell you anything, and of course your navigation. You know the sun will move fifteen degrees around you each hour. You 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 know that, and so but you can become totally mixed up because after a while you can't relate to home. Um, you just yeah. no longer can imagine what it's like to go shopping or be among people or anything like that. It's just you can't relate to any of it after a while. Hmm. 
that's yeah i mean for me i think a lot a lot of a lot of people and look any context we're talking work we're talking sport we're talking business it's those routines that you're putting in place that what's the saying keep on keeping on you one foot in front of the other like you say but you know having those strong routines and systems in place it's going to get you going a little bit at least right yes that's right yes you you have to it takes a few days to no matter how well prepared you are it takes a few days the first few days to just actually settle in you know a week by the end of the week i find i'm pretty well settled into the routine um, up to that point, you're sort of fumbling a little bit. Um, you know, you're getting your, you know, going according to your plan and find, yeah, I need to adjust, make an adjust. You're making your adjustments over that first week. Then after that, you've got your routine going, and um, but then you're becoming one with your environment. That's why I don't take any music or any reading. Right. Because I do take a small New Testament Bible, just a little one. Um, that fits in my pocket, but that's all I have um, because um, I don't like listening to music or anything as I'm going because then I'm not I'm not one with my environment. I don't mm-hmm. feel as though I'm joined to my environment. I'm separated. So if something happens, I can't react instantly, mm-hmm. and I and I would need time to get myself out of the. Um, artificial environment into my present environment sometimes there's no time to really do that if you want to survive it's very interesting you say that because I mean I think the artificial environment versus the environment we live in here and now the world at the moment almost lives more in the artificial environment than in the real one I could be you know wrong with that but you think about it it's it's just that um and my husband had the same feeling. I know a lot of people, they play music as they go, uh, things like that. But my husband felt the same way. We felt that we needed to be totally at one with the environment, whatever it is, so that we're experiencing it as we go and we're ready for anything to happen and we can deal with it. We don't have to jump from one environment to another. I'm listening to, I, I like I like a certain amount of classical music. I can't, you know, the orchestra's playing. I'm just, I just love, say it's a Strauss waltz, which I love. So, and right, so yeah. you know, I'm listening to this, it's all so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, bam, something happens around me. Well, here comes a polar bear or something. Well, oh my gosh, take the earphones off and I put Strauss away. Now let me see, this is a polar bear. <laughs> You're about? already on the back foot. Yeah, you were really. Now, see, it took me those few moments to get now adjusted, readjusted. Well, now if I was at one, oh, here's the pole bear right away. I've got him. That's unbelievable. That's really, that's, well, I mean, it obviously worked for you. I, I, I actually, I can't even reconcile the fact that you, you survived on five walnuts for seven days. I mean, how does that even, how did you, how did you do that? Well, it was a game. It was a mental game I had to play. I chewed each one a long time, pretending it was a big meal. And then I would tell myself, hmm, this is very good. My God, you know, <laughs> it was fine. I would say, you tell a lot of lies to yourself. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'd other people that I'm so busy lying to myself. Oh, mm, yes, this is good. This is fine. And then the, the lack of water, of course. Um, oh, that's not a problem. I can go a long time without water. I just chew, chew snow. Well, the snow in the Arctic environment, as it is in the Antarctic, is very, very dry. So you're not going to get much out of it. 
but to put that coal into the center of your body when you don't have enough calories and carbohydrates to keep the inner furnace going, you're only making yourself worse and you can get stomach cramps and become very uncomfortable. And so that wasn't very good. And so, because anyway, you, you know, you can go, oh, I went along the first, it was seven days I had to go through this. The first few days I went on, I'm, I'm busy telling myself how wonderful I feel and, and uh, the steps are getting slower, but no, I'm, I'm leaning Still forward. moving. I'm, I'm leaning forward into my cross-country ski style, you know, and I, I was putting out a cross-country ski racing and boy, I'm leaning forward. But the fact that I was leaning forward because I could no longer stand up straight. Stay straight. <laughs> yeah. I was, I'm leaning forward because look at the technique. I'm really getting into racing style here. I'm leaning forward. I'm really, and I kept telling myself this. Well, finally, after a few days, you realize no matter what you're saying, I might never get up again. <laughs> and I'm so hungry. I could just, I mean, if a polar bear peeled with, appeared with a part of a seal anymore, I think I'd grab it right out of his cord. <laughs> It's yeah. just anything, and you're just craving something to drink. Now you start chewing on ice. Then the big blood blisters form in your mouth because of the cold. The coldness, yeah. Yeah, so I learned that so I didn't get stomach cramps. I'd have to let the ice melt in my mouth first and then swallow. Well, of course, the blood blisters, well, I learned to ignore those and, and so forth, and that wasn't good because then you start to bleed. I won't go into that because I'll gross your audience out. It's just really hard. And so, then, and so you know, but you're busy lying away and convincing yourself you're doing quite nice with a convinced game. And then after a while, you realize this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm not going to believe a darn thing I'm saying to myself anymore. You get over the, you get to the point where you're so thirsty, your, your throat is burning with the thirst and you're, your mouth is so dry and and the effects of dehydration, you're getting weaker and um, things are not good. And then the hunger, you know, you just don't have the energy and your blood sugar is sunk down. Into so the low, so yeah. The energy is shot and it's getting hard to push one ski in front of the other and it's even getting hard to think anymore. And you realize that, you know, this is, this is quite serious. <laughs> I could, and then you you know you have to deal with a new reality that this is not good but uh you know i could always get the radio out and call base and they could come and find me and and no i'm not i've been to, and i said to myself for what i have been through what those polar bears have put me through and seven of them and then the storms and all the stuff that's gone on and what I've had to put up with, I'm not about to quit at this point. So I struggled on and then finally, of course, I made it to the end and, oh my goodness, food was amazing. But the, of course, you know, when you swallow those first mouthfuls of food, it really hurts to swallow and, and the, all the liquid, but you, get, you, get, you have to get past the pain of the first swallows of both liquid and food. It's very painful. Oh, wow. What was the first meal that you ate? Well, uh, the, the part of the, see, on my radio, I had not told I'd, daily communication. I hadn't told anybody at base camp. They, they knew I'd been through a very big storm 
yeah. they were concerned. They said, well, what's your inventory of food and fuel? Oh, no problem. I've got 10 days of supply. I didn't tell them it was just seven days of, of uh, and then, you know, and only seven days to go. That means I've got three days to spare. Yeah. I didn't tell them it's going to be five walnuts per day for seven days because they would have, they would have sent a plane out. I didn't want that. To get you, yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So and you're lying, not just yourself, but to them too. <laughs> That's right. And so I had to be careful of that. And besides, my husband was away flying a helicopter and he was checking in every day. I didn't want him worrying because he had a very dangerous job. And I and I would have never forgiven myself if he had a crashed because he was worried about me and not thinking about what he was supposed to be doing in the air. Yeah, so true. Yeah, I had many things to think about. I had responsibilities at home that I had to think about. So I just chose not to tell anybody. <laughs> They'll find out. And so when I, now now the plane came in, and finally I'm at my finish point there and to, on my radio and they came in. They couldn't come that day. I had to wait till the next day because they had a storm at base camp because they were a long way, many hundred yeah, yeah, miles yeah. away. I had a different, different weather storm there. And finally the next day they came, most beautiful airplane I've ever seen in my life and pilot first people in the month. And so then um, the pilot, uh, he mentioned, oh, Josh, would you like a little snack? He, he didn't know I was starving. I hadn't told him. And um, I, I just, when they came, I really tried to stand up straight and look very strong because I didn't want them to be feeling, you know, thinking they've got to haul this woman back to base camp because she's dying. I wanted to look good. And so yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. Vanity goes everywhere with us. And so... And so when he offered a snack, uh, oh, yes, I really like that. And so he bought um, back a sandwich and some juice. Well, of course, it was his lunch. And um, well, I ate the whole thing, drank the juice. It's my lunch now. Say, oh, but, oh, my goodness. You know, if I'd been polite, I would have said, oh, well, thank you, but this must be your lunch. I would, don't want to take your lunch. I took it. <laughs> <laughs> I think he ate breakfast this morning. I didn't. <laughs> So what, what was their reaction when they actually had realized you had five walnuts for seven days? You well, must have got a grilling. Appalled. They were just appalled. In fact, the pilot, when we landed, he said, my goodness, that sandwich went in a hurry. I, then I told him, I said, well, he said, oh, my gosh. He said, you should have called. Then we would have come out and got you. And I said, that's why I didn't that's tell why. you. I didn't <laughs> want you to do that. And so, and, but no, they were pretty appalled. At, and and I, I lost 12 pounds. It was all in the last week. And so, uh, but, you know, it was a great experience, really. Uh, it was a life-changing experience for me. I realized um, just what we can do to survive and, I learned a lot about myself. I realized that challenges and I see challenge is important in my life. And, and I realized all those lessons I learned from my parents one step at a time and uh, seeing yourself as being successful there at the end. And that can apply to anything. Even if you're trying for whatever you're trying for in your life, your career, your whatever, even if you're making a, your garden pretty at home, you can see how you want it, and that's what you're striving for. And right. It's not about the big shebang. It can be something as simple as your dinner you're making. Yeah, yeah. Imagine what it's going to look like on the plate. Well, hey, you know, and you, and you go out in your garden, and I love gardening. I'm a landscaper at heart too, and I can visualize what I want this to look like, and that's what I strive for. So it, it applies to all, all parts of our life. Even, even driving into town, I live in the country to drive into town to buy my groceries. 
I visualise getting there in one piece. I don't visualise myself crashing and burning along the way somewhere. I visualise myself getting there safely. It gets me there safely. So you see, when we think about it, we can apply that in ways we never thought of. Our whole life, our whole life, if we could make our whole life of being optimistic and uh, uh, forward thinking and choosing, say, choosing happiness and choosing to set goals and plan for success and and just just choosing that, just that's our choice. We have the we have we have, we have the ability to choose. Yeah, well, that's 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 some beautiful advice. I mean, I think even even me when I have a tricky day as a teacher. Sometimes I struggle to even, you know, you have those you, moments. You need, you need a, as a teacher, you need a lot of practice in visualizing success. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, you need to get good at also <laughs> wigging it. <laughs> when you still have all the hair on your head, you haven't torn it out. <laughs> I know. I haven't got any gray hairs yet, but that, that'll be there by the end of the year. <laughs> no, no, there's a big challenge there. You, 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 got, you, you really need to practice that one daily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, I know you've walked with the magnetic North Pole, but I've taught math, and I can tell you now. I know that's to get everybody's attention. <laughs> yeah, um, but for you doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, <or> just most. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, for you, Helen, what was the immediate aftermath of that of that trip to the magnetic North Pole when you came home back to reality? Well, well not reality, was, but you know, it's really rather interesting because. When I went, um, you see, I had the idea that this would be the first program for Adventure Classroom where I would go into schools and tell people, tell kids about my experience. I never thought that anybody would be interested enough in my journey to ask me to speak to any adult audience. It didn't occur to me. Right. It didn't occur to me that I would ever write a book about it. Because my attitude was it was my experience, and why 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 would anybody care about what I did? Right, yeah. Um, I'd bore them to death, and so I, I didn't really think of that. And so it it was amazing. I I uh, uh, there was a, a um, the uh, Kiwanis. Um, no, it was a Rotary group asked me to speak uh, and tell them about their journey at their lunch meeting, and I thought, oh, why would be nice? And, Somebody's, oh, okay, and and bring your dog Charlie because I brought Charlie home with me, and I did, and, and it was fun, and I had a good time telling people about it, and well, that was fun. So I didn't think any more about. It. Then the next thing is word spread, and more people asked me to speak, uh, and uh, even companies started to call me and want me to speak at their annual meeting or their convention, and, and so that that opened up huge doors for me, uh, and I, I found myself I was. I, spoken at the White House twice, in the Russian wow. England. And, you know, I mean, who in the world ever thought when I walked upon? I never dreamt of any of this. And then writing a book, um, Bill said, you know, now, you know, you like to write and um, you need to write a book. And my mother and father, yeah, you've got to write this. And well, okay, I've never written a book. We'll give it a but, go. But I'll give it a shot and see what happens. I'll, and, and then, and I got into that. Oh, that was, so, I just loved that. I thought, God, this writing thing, this is good. I really love it. And I found I had a natural ability that I didn't know anything about. And so, because I like, in school, I did like, you know, composition. It was, I loved to write in school. But I never thought of myself, right. I mean, writing a book is an entirely different experience. So 
But it is so different to what I see is happening these days in many cases. I know of many people in a, a much younger, a much younger generation than I go out and they want to make their living in the adventure world, as it's called these days. And um, they go with the idea that when they come back, after they've done this amazing journey, uh, they will write a book that everybody will clamor to, to, to buy. And uh, they, of course, will make 20000 I've been told this, that they expect to make $20,000 per speech when they come back. Uh, and I tell them, I'm sorry, but uh, have you ever written before? Oh, no, no, I haven't particularly liked this one fellow. So oh, I haven't really liked to write much, but I, I get a book out there because people will want to read it. And I said, well, you'll be surprised that that might be very difficult. And as for your $20,000 uh, for a speech for um, corporate America uh, companies, um, you might be surprised at how, how often you'll be staying at home. And uh, he was quite offended. But I said, <laughs> it is reality. You might give that a thought. Well, of course, this is what happens. Absolutely, yeah. Because most people who go out on my journeys like I go out on are not comfortable with public speaking because they're rather, by nature, rather reclusive, lonely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Makes up sense. And up on stage in front of a mic before I've had my largest audience of 7,000 people for the Billionaires uh, Club in Chicago. And I've spoken for National Geographic many times. And I've, I've had large audiences and middle-sized audiences. And I love it. But I'm just fortunate that I was made that way. But most of us, I said, most of us are more reclusive and more. Um, I, I, you know, I love to be home alone on the farm, but uh, I love to be out there among people too. And that, but a lot of people they find themselves most uncomfortable because they're not, they're not meant for that. It's they're good at other things. Um, and as for writing the book, they find that a, a publisher just can't see it you know that was that's very disappointing to them but i see that happening all the time now these days um, people go out with great expectations of coming home and making those speeches writing that bestseller book and it doesn't happen for them for one reason or other whereas i went out with no expectations at all you went out for you you know what i mean it's the difference yes. between going out for others or going out for an experience for you me and to share it was with kids to where it might mean something to somebody else, to the kids. I can pass this on to them. I can show them that I set goals. I can show them what it's like to be with polar bears. I can show them what the Arctic is like. I never thought of it beyond there. And so it came as a remarkable surprise to me. And I still am to a great extent is that the way, uh, as I call it, corporate America, you know, Microsoft, all these big uh, companies I've spoken for and, and um, you know, the White House a couple of times and the Russian Kremlin and uh, these experiences have been amazing. And I think just me, I, I'm just an ordinary, I really am an ordinary person. I really am. I'm not that brave person that braved the wilds and braved the polar bears. No. No, no, no. Uh, nobody could have been more scared than I was. Um, uh, nobody, I mean, I just went to the ultimate of being, uh, being afraid. Um, 
uh, and, uh, and no expectations of writing that book and making that speech. Just being pleasantly surprised because I'm just I'm just an ordinary, you know. Now I'm my husband after 55 years of marriage, a wonderful marriage, the most marvelous person. Um, he uh, he had an accident and uh, passed away. But you know, on the farm, I'm happy. I've got twelve goats. Twelve goats. Got, yeah, twelve goats, and I've got uh, four dogs. They're all rescued, yeah, and yeah. cats, and one chicken left. And so, where'd the other ones go? They all died of old age. Oh, okay. I thought you were about to say you got hungry. <laughs> oh no, no, no. The, uh, the chickens uh, can't kill things, you know. So what happens is after a few years, they don't lay eggs anymore. You just have pets. Well, that's okay. And yeah. so, and I, so, but that's really, that's the real me. I, I just really enjoy that. But I love to write. I've discovered I love to write. I just, I've just finished the book on Charlie the dog. Oh, beautiful. When are we expecting to have that one come out? Um, I'm hoping by the end of the year, I'm hoping. Mm. Um, I'm, um, it's, a, it's a story of, about Charlie the dog who walked to the pole with me. And it was most interesting. His life was extraordinary because um, he um, was a polar bear dog. And then he came home to the farm integrated with the farm animals and then he was the bridge between us and wild wolves because my husband and i were actually we actually lived with wild wolves for one year in a wolf study yeah and i've read that so you you literally lived a year with wild wolves studying what their their, their habits social and style and everything about them and uh, summer and winter and uh charlie he his grandfather was an arctic wolf his mix was canadian Inuit husky dog was was uh, was a wolf, and uh, his grandfather was an Arctic wolf because sometimes they integrate in the north and uh, produce offspring, and he was one of them. And um, and I was actually able to interview an Inuit elder who told who was Charlie's previous owner. So I've learnt of Charlie's life from the day he was born all the way through. And so um, the elder talked all about told me everything had happened up to the time I met the dog and I called him Charlie. And so, so then there's also, then his story goes from the time he, I met him, well, his early life. And then when I met him, we went to the pole and then when he came home, integrated with the farm and so forth. And there was some funny things happened there and then a lot of humor in there. And then we go off with the wolves and he was a bridge between us and the wolves. And it was amazing, an amazing experience. He was- so They could communicate with each other. Yeah, exactly. That's what happened. He actually turned very wolf-like, very bonded, a very gentle, wonderful animal. He was just so, he was so gentle. But then out in the wolves, he could communicate. It was an, it, it was an experiment and it worked. Yeah. And we didn't know if that was going to work before we went. We planned well, we hoped, and, but, and it worked. And so that's the, the second part of his life. So that's all in the book. And it took me quite a while to put that book together because of the, the, the different aspects of his life. And so it, um, and then my next book, I believe I'm, I have, I have a series of children's books coming up, but my next adult book, I believe I'm going to call it Walk About with Bill. Okay. And I'm going to, each chapter will be a, an expedition that Bill and I went on together because you see he and I walked the Sahara and the Gobi the Ab we 
kayak the Amazon, 2,000 miles of the Amazon. What was that experience like? I mean, when I hear Amazon, because I was a whitewater kayaker, I just, oh, I think really? of para yeah, at school, and I love my outdoor education, and we did the, some grade three, grade four stuff. But, um, yeah, I can imagine it's piranhas and oh, yeah, snakes. The and yeah, the, the, all of that was a, a big problem. At one point, we had, uh, you know, in the, uh, the Amazon, sometimes it's very wide, sometimes it comes down, and then there's tributaries. And we we're on a tributary at this one point, um, actually looking for a place to camp, and um, which is not always easy to find because you've got to avoid the crocodiles and the, everything else around you. And so um, anyway, we heard this humming and we looked up and here is this black cloud coming us and it's a cloud of killer bees. Well, of course, oh the next few seconds, you're these things were swarming us. Well, you know, you cannot survive thousands yeah. of stings. You're not going to survive it. And so there's only one place to go, and that's to dive into the water. Well, that's oh where the piranha are, because we were piranha-like rather still water. We were in a tributary where the, in this area the water was still. Not a good place to go into the water. No. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? So, well, you see, my husband and I, we always agreed that, you know, when, when, when trials and tribulations arrive and the emergency is on your doorstep, don't worry about the problems of the future. Worry about the problem of the moment. Well, the problem of the moment is that we're swarmed by bees and we're being stung. Mm. So we dived into the water with the piranha. But we were just... Uh, uh, the. We, there was no, no piranha came to us. It was amazing. Oh my God, that is then that's it, a miracle. Getting in the water, the bees, of course, don't do well in water. And so we managed to get them off. You're basically scratching and, and just scraping them off you. Well, then, of course, you're going into this anaphylactic reaction, but we've got the pen, you know. And we, you got the EpiPen, yeah. Yeah, but we got managed to get back into the kayaks. We actually had to help each other because we were getting pretty, the throat started to, close up you know and you, we were getting and we gave each other a shot and and so um then we started to come back out of it but that that was one one problem that we had to overcome and oh there were other things one or two indians uh were not particularly friendly to us um you had to be careful you know spears start flying you better get out of there and the poison Goodness. darts in the ends of them <laughs> Do you know, I feel like this like this is your life, but it feels like it's a movie, honestly, <laughs> from my end anyway. <laughs> but the Amazon, oh, the the monkeys and the parrots. Oh, I just, oh, I just love those birds and those. Yeah, well, birds. some of your beautiful photography, which is all available up there online, yeah. is just, that comes from there, because right? you, you love your photography, don't you? Oh, I do. I love that. Yeah, it's a... It's a it's a, like I'm not a techie person. Don't ask me to fix your car if the key doesn't do it. <laughs> Don't ask me either. I take the phone. I say, yeah, if the key doesn't do it, just go buy a new one. <laughs> buy a new car. <laughs> I can change the tire and I can check the oil and do the radiator and all those wonderful things. There you go. But don't ask me to fix a silly thing if it would stop. But I love to photography and writing and all those sort of things. But the, the, the Amazon... Um, it's a beautiful place. Uh, the animals and the uh, listening to the howling monkeys at night, and uh, and the monkeys and uh, the birds and the snakes are not so much fun. I don't coming from New Zealand. I don't 
do snakes well at all. Um, or big spiders? No, I don't do those two things well at all. Uh, <laughs> tarantulas. Now, I've taken a photo of the tarantula, um, uh, his, uh, his um, you know, dig down into the earth uh, of his tunnels, but I, I couldn't take a photo of the tarantula. I couldn't, I couldn't look at him in the, the lens of the camera. I just make, oh, no. It's <laughs> I, I'm freaked out just thinking about it. I know, but my husband now, he comes from Needles, California, tarantulas everywhere, and, and snakes. Well, when we first came to the States, we were newly married, and so off we went. Um, his father, my father-in-law, he had a, a cabin by a beautiful lake in the desert. So we went. So this is my first experience in the desert. I didn't know then I was going to walk thousands of miles across and I was fascinated. Oh, the cactus. I love cactus flowers. Beautiful. And so then uh, we were out on the lake and just in inner tubes, I saw my first coyote. I, I was so excited. Oh. I fell out into the water. It was so wonderful to see this beautiful coyote. I just, oh, it was gorgeous. But my husband and I, he likes to hike too. He's a very athletic man. And um, let's go hiking. And then he said, well, we and you know remember the snakes out here. <gasps> well, I have thought of <laughs> hold on, snakes. hold on. <laughs> <laughs> so when he put his foot, I was directly behind him, and then he got so tired of me just basically breathing down his neck. He stopped and he said, "You know, the person who gets bitten is always the one that's second because the first one disturbed him, and the snake bites the second one." I walked uh, right around and just switched. <laughs> <laughs> I was in front immediately. That's and then so funny. This tarantula. I took one look at that thing. I said, "Get me out of here!" <laughs> oh, who would have thought? I eh? undone by the 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 rip. No, what are they? The snakes and spiders. Reptiles, yes. And oh, there's that a tarantula is so disgusting looking. Because some people have them as pets, but that's you know that's another thing. But so that, I had to make some adjustments to my thinking. Um, I don't, uh, there is, a, in the Northwest, we don't have snakes here. That's another thing, reason I'm living in the Northwest. There are no snakes on this side of the mountains, except a little garden snake called the garden snake. Well, it took me several years before I accepted them, but that's okay. Um, they're okay because they eat the slugs. I can tolerate them. They're okay. Uh, they, don't, they don't do anything to you. They're all right. So, oh, well, but uh, so I could, I've survived that. But I, so I had some adjusting to do there. Well, I mean, yeah, talking about adjustments and, and your fascination for the deserts and, you know, walking across the Sahara sounds unbelievably amazing. But even the Gobi Desert, I mean, from what I've heard, that experience was one of, one that was very, uh, very interesting, put it that way. Because a lot of people wouldn't know where the Gobi is. No, that's right. And uh, it fascinated us because... Uh, the, the culture there is most the, the the Mongolian culture, the nomads in the desert. They're the most wonderful people. You know, in my travels, I've met oh, I've met people of indigenous cultures that have made me feel so inadequate in my Caucasian world. Uh, these people know so much about so many things that I didn't know about. It's like, God, you know, I've got so much to learn from these people. And that's always our attitude, my husband and I. And I've lived with, with tribal people in Africa. And it's always, I mean, we're not here to teach you anything, but we are here for you to teach us. And it, it's amazing what these people know about the environment and 
things we just never thought of. And, but uh, the Gobi was amazing. Now the Sahara, <clears throat> we walked from, Mongo uh, from Morocco to the Nile, 4,000 miles all the way across the desert. And um, it was, there was seven and a half months of hell. And I said yeah. to my husband after that journey, I will never speak of this journey, nor will I ever write of it. I know I want, I don't want ever, I don't want to hear about it again. He was the same way. It had been so much trauma. It was in the beginning, we were only three weeks into it. We were kidnapped and stood side by side to be executed. We were just basically probably a minute from being executed. What was that and, about? Well, we had been out there and we hadn't seen any humans for some time. And we've you said that so casually. I just, I can't just hold on a minute. <laughs> well, it, uh, it was a sort of an interesting situation. We were walking as usual, leading our camels, George and Henry. And, uh, um, we, we saw the dust on the horizon. Oh, good. There's people. We haven't seen people in ages. Well, you know, nice. Always mm. like to meet people out in these places to see what they're doing. Anyway, it arrives and it's this truck. It's a truckload of government rebels and, and oh. fight, fighting the Algerian government. It's, oh, dear. Hmm. He's not quite who we wanted to talk to today. And so anyway, they got down it and, you know, who are you? And they go on and they're very, very, they're very rude and very rough and wanted to know what authorization we had to be there. Well, yes, we produced our visas and, and all our papers were in order. We had the proper permission from all the countries we were to cross. We already had our visas. The person who helped us arrange was a, a Mongolian who knew the desert. The desert was his life. He knew the whole day and he had arranged all of our visas all the way across. We were, but no, the leader of this group, he had, his name wasn't on these, so they didn't count. That was the attitude. And so uh, we were to be executed because uh, um, you see, I have two passports and I had uh, my husband's American. Well, we agreed that we would travel on the American passport because if we were separated, if, if we had different passports, we might be separated. If we had to go down anywhere, we were going to go down together. So I had my, Ameri well, you're Americans. And then I said, yes, but I'm New Zealand. Well, that didn't mean a thing to me. Never heard of that place. And they told me, well, that must be some place in hell because you're Americans. So you you come from Satan and <clears throat> you say you're in New Zealand. That's worse. It's probably some place in hell. They'd never heard of it. So it must be hell. Yeah. So I thought, well, that's not very nice. But anyway. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's quite the opposite, actually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, there's no point trying to. <laughs> I yeah. mean, an explanation at that point wasn't really going to go anywhere. And no. so they um, said, well, they unloaded all of our stuff off the camels and put it on their truck, and they were going to shoot the camels. And now then they decided they'd shoot us first. And then my husband. He's asked, he said, we're lined up to be executed and the guns are here. And so he said, uh, uh, um, Helen gave me a GPS as a gift. It's in my pocket. Can I reach into my pocket and take it out so that I'm holding it in my hand as I die? And I'm thinking, what in the world is he talking about? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they uh, it said, okay. And then, you know, it has the keypad and he pretended to punch in a message on it. And then he said, I've just sent a message to our base camp 
And in just two minutes, there's going to be a helicopter here. I've described them to you. There's going to be a helicopter here. They know who you are. And it'll be a gunship. And it's from our, from our base camp. And it's going to be a gunship. I think, boy, this is something. Anyway. <laughs> Here you are, just keeping your mouth shut. <laughs> Very shut. <laughs> I probably bugging out this by this time. Anyway, they believed him. They threw everything that belonged to us off the truck, off, threw all on the ground and drove off as fast as they could go. They actually believed him. And well, it was just the GPS. Yeah, our, our budget. Well, to start, the GPS doesn't doesn't receive it only it receives it doesn't send anything and plus our budget did not go take us to base camps and certainly never a helicopter and a gunship oh my, God. <laughs> my husband was the helicopter thinking you know and so anyway i got to sell that little jam so on we went but then from then ever wherever we saw dust anywhere we always hid from then yeah. on but we were robbed three times and then we had to walk through minefields. We had to find somebody locally who had been employed to help lay the mines um, so they would know the path. There's always a path through. And whoever laid, helped lay the mines, they will, should know. What were mines laid for? Was it in wartime or? Oh, the Sahara. It's a mess. All these countries fight each other. They hate each other. They hate themselves. They hate each other. They fight internally, externally, any way you can think they fight. Now, their attitude is they don't like the, say, like Niger doesn't like the, the Shardians. Oh, well, we'll just mine the, mine the border. And so the borders are mined and, and it's even worse now. Oh, I, you can't go there now. It's, it's a killer to go there now. And so uh, the, it was bad enough when we did it in the mid-90s. And so... Um, so, uh, so what we'd do, we'd find somebody, uh, an, an indigenous person locally, uh, who had been employed to lay the mines. It's not hard to get the information, people will always tell you. And then you offer them half now and half when we get through the other end. And then he is to walk at least 100 feet in front. Oh, oh in case it goes up, yeah. And if he says no or hesitates, sorry <laughs> yeah 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 yes but the guy that say oh yes i know the way and he'll walk he's happy to walk and then camels are very good the path is usually not wide but camels are very good they don't walk like a horse with wide gait it's narrow so and as long as you go narrow you get through okay but it is the pucker time there's the pucker factor you're really you're really nervous it's not it's not yeah. fun walking through those things it's very, very nerve-wracking. You're just worn out by the time you get through. Just mentally, you're just worn out. You're and so and you're saying that journey was what seven months? Did you say? What's that? That journey, the length of that time. It was seven and a half months. Seven and a half months. And we were fortunate. Um, there was another couple uh, in the eighties who had walked the more of the southern portion all the way across the Sahara, a man and a woman, husband and wife, uh, the southern portion. We, were, we started from Morocco and went more northerly through the heart of the desert. Um, and, but they had had, pro we learned from their journey, we read in detail about their journey, they had to get visas from each country and it was a mess. There's delays and whether you're going to get a visa or not and, and all this sort of thing. There's a lot of confrontation, a lot of animosity and very difficult. And then they would uh, uh, trade off camel, go in and 
stay in the town and buy food and they would um, they would uh, buy more camels and they did this on the way whereas we knew that we didn't want to do it that way and especially it was a bit more turmoil going on in the mid 90s as it was in, when they did it in the mid 60s so this man <clears throat> who knew the entire desert and he had contacts it's who you know is important in yeah, instead of yeah yeah who you know he knew the right people so he got visas for every country that we would go through and then um also we had resupplies we didn't have to go into town and buy food nor did we have to uh, negotiate for more camels what he had at certain points uh, he would hand off gps to his contacts they would bring fresh camels up to a certain point and we would all meet according we would just navigate to the meet and meet there exchange camels and resupply and go on and in many places we were crossing borders Ill illegally we crossed most of the borders well actually we crossed all the borders illegally um in the night <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah, sneak it away i wouldn't put it past you helen <laughs> it's so that we didn't have to go through this problem of, because they can stop you and not let you go on mm. and uh so we solved that but this man was totally wonderful he was he he arranged the whole thing and we actually lived in uh in Mongolia for three months on a camel farm, learning to care for and um, handle camels because it is, an, it is a whole new technique. And we found that uh, we treated our camels as family and they treated us in return the same way. Yeah. Very, our camels were very wonderful. We, we just love our camels. In fact, our camels, um, every camel that we used was returned to a camel farm in, in Morocco. Oh, nice where we support them yeah it's like you say i mean it's all about that preparation and planning and you know you have come so far to not go further do you know what i mean you you got to put that work in in the sahara it could have been that way because you, we went through what so it was seven countries we could have been stopped at any of them um we could have met with trouble if we'd gone into the towns because the mid nineties, it was the, the Tulag had been fighting the government. Uh, they'd been fighting going on. We needed to avoid all of that. And this man knew how to, he had contacts in the right places, high up, who could arrange these things for us. And so we knew that those camels and resupply would be there. Um, and we knew that uh, we knew that they could tell us how to get a, guide us across the border and in the middle of the night and uh, so we wouldn't be detected you know it's like tippy toe time <laughs> yeah, yeah tippy toe time we should yeah that should that should be the name of the book yeah, tippy toe time because that would be a good name i had thought of that i should remember that but <laughs> I, one day i will write that book um it's a bill yeah be fairly because it's too, it was a lot to it um but we finally got through. We looked like just like a couple of scarecrows when we got through. We didn't know who was look, looked worse, but we um, we got through. It was we had to get through sandstorms, and um, we met some wonderful indigenous people going across. And then we met some confrontational people, but we were able to get around that. But but because we had planned it in a different way, we had a different experience than the first couple that went across the, the more southerly route. They were down in Maritania. They started down there, went more of a southerly route. We started in, in Morocco and went down through Algeria and northerly, northern Chad and Mali, 
in those places. But it's very likely that nobody will ever make that journey all the way across again. It's now it's too dangerous. Northern Mali is is full of uh, Al Qaeda training camps and uh, Shad Nisha, same thing. It's uh, and the Sudan felt pieces and. Um, that's the reality of of what you've done. Is that, I mean, I know you will be one of the first people to downplay the accolades, and you know, I'm just a Kiwi. I'm just Helen. I'm just me. But the incredible feats and pioneering feats, the f- the first person, the first woman to do this and that, some of those things might not be able to be repeated anymore. No, um, it's getting more difficult to get to the pole, uh, uh, the north, the the north magnetic and geographic poles. Because the ice is simply, it is so thin, so much thinner. Bill and I actually made that journey, the same journey that I did to the pole. We did it four years later to celebrate our 30th anniversary. Oh, and, right. uh, uh, we pulled our own sleds and same, same way as I did the first time. The ice was noticeably, four years later, the ice was noticeably thinner. Oh, wow. um, now, now it's really it really is. It's, uh, we find a lot of water now. Um, the ice is breaking up. Um, and then the Sahara, well, politically, it's in the fighting and uh, the turmoil, the unrest and the danger anymore. And, uh, and being an American is even worse. And so, um, yeah, it's not uh, American passport and my New Zealand, I mean, they just... Uh, would not, they wouldn't get, wouldn't get me by. And now it was my husband gone, I wouldn't go alone anyway. There's some places I, I don't go alone as a woman, but we, we couldn't, it's very doubtful that anybody can. There have been one or two tried, they set out and they were stopped very early on at a border. They weren't allowed to continue. But we planned it differently uh, because we were actually the first ones to ever go from Morocco to the Nile. The other people were the first ones to cross the Sahara from, in a more southerly route. But we, we, we learnt from what they did, from reading in detail what they did, the problems with visas at each border, um, getting camels um, as you go, replace food as you go. Uh, we, had, we arranged that all because we got, had the right contact who knew the desert, he'd been on all these trade routes, he's an older man, he'd known it and his, his father and his grandfather had been doing this. And so he knew that desert from one side to the other. The other, yeah. And the right people, because in order to do, to do his trading, that he'd done, see his, his grandfather was actually a trader of slaves and spices, oh, wow. sort of thing. Oh, wow, across yeah. the and that's big over there at that t- in those days. Yes, yes. And even his father, a lot of slave trade. And of course, this man we dealt with, he hadn't done any slaves. It was not slaves. It was dates and, and gold and things like that. And salt, a lot of salt. He, he traded a lot of salt. And, uh, but he'd been from one side of the desert to the other. So he had the, right, he had the right connections high up. And those high up connections were able to make sure that we had the right visas all sent to us in advance. And... Um, then he had people at various places who would come up out of the village um, with new camels and fresh camels and resupply. And we just had to meet at the, at the places. And 
and, and the idea was that a certain date we should meet, but if we were late, they would wait in case we found out. See, it was all very, very well arranged. Uh, well, that's what I mean. Like you say, it's all about the planning that you put in to see your dreams become realities. And people listening to this, I mean, I'm, I I feel like I could go and do anything right now just listening to your stories. But, you know, it's about just one foot in front of the other. Like you say, it starts there. It makes me it makes me wonder, Helen, Was I mean, maybe it wasn't, but was Mount Everest ever on your radar? No, because... Um my family became very close friends with Ed Hillary, and um, I, I met Ed as a very young girl, and um, and Dan Bryant was the headmaster of Pukekohe High School, a man I just dearly loved. I, I admired the headmaster. He was an Everest climber in one of the reconnaissance expeditions before Ed climbed it, right. and so um, and I met Ed. and anyway we were very close friends with him and and we actually did a lot of climbing with him and and uh he taught me so much about mountain climbing and he's a wonderful man um very goal-oriented challenge uh he uh he, i can see he, where you get it from a little bit yeah he was uh and you see my parents were this way too we, we were just it was a good fit for friendship and and he really became one of my childhood mentors i took a lot of advice from ed and he wrote the forward to my uh, to my polar dream book, my first book, and um, but I, I uh, you know, Ed, he climbed that mountain in a more of a pristine, pure time. They climbed the mountain. They didn't have guides. They didn't have fixed ropes to the summit. They didn't have garbage all over the place. They didn't have a telecommunication center at base camp. Well. As time went on, Mount Everest became a garbage dump, and they had what they call the um, the uh, um, the uh, Sherpa docks doctors. They they go ahead and they put the route through the Kumbu ice form, then they put the, the the fixed ropes practically to the summit. <clears throat> People have got to stand in line at a place called the Hilly Step in order to to get up and. You know, all the, and the, and the, the base camp, there's a huge telecommunication center there now. And the garbage and the bodies, people die on it. The disrespect for other people's discomfort. You're so intent on getting to the summit, the poor guy dying to the summit is totally ignored. And he's dead by the time you come back. And Ed was so appalled at that. And, and then the guiding groups, well, of course, there are some very good guiding groups, and but there's all the, a lot of people are on the mountain who don't belong on the mountain. They <clears throat> they had a pressure cooker course, and not all of them, because there are many who aren't. Yeah, of course, of course. Many of them are very genuine, of course, but there's so many hundreds of them are people who just shouldn't be on the mountain, and they're cluttering the place up for people who are more experienced and. They're on those fixed lines and just go on up and I uh, know I no, I I told Ed I would never climb it and he was happy he he, yeah. he he was very upset over it all and I had such respect and such love for that man that I oh if I'd climbed that mountain I felt that I would have stepped on him somehow it wouldn't have been right you know it's not right not right in his memory he did it in a very pure good time and. 
And of course, some people would disagree with me and say, well, you know, it's good for the tourist type people to take it on. Well, yes, if that's entirely their business and I will never stand in judgment of them ever. But I will say that I will not, I will not go on that. I will not climb that mountain. It's, it's yeah. so desecrated. It's, um, and that's an interesting perspective that a lot of people won't hear. I think I was doing a study with my class actually the other day on Sir Ed and, um, and Tenzin. New Zealand, a total New Zealand treasure. Oh, he is. And I think something you said is, you know, when I've done adventures in the bush or, um, you know, I've done hikes and all sorts, and we always say, you know, it is spoilt when there's evidence of man or, or woman, you know what I mean? There's a piece of rubbish or there's, you know, you just feel like it's not the genuine thing. And you pick it up, like this was something he said, he said, you see seeing it, if you see him, yeah, he was so upset over it. He said, I can always remember him saying at one time, he said, if you ever see anybody drop anything in the bush, pick it up, tell them about it, and you pick it up and you take it out. Show them that you're better and you, there's a better way of doing it. And I thought, boy, what a, you know, that was a lesson for a young girl, you know, it was just great. My parents were that way too, boy, you better not drop anything. <laughs> you, the candy wrapper, you better put that back in your pack. <laughs> my yeah. dad had never seen that go on the ground. I would have <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, I am moved. I'm captivated and I'm encouraged. And, and like we said, we, we, we're going we're gonna to catch up again um, and have a part two. We might even have part five by the time we're done. <laughs> but what would you say, Helen, if you had to leave us today with one parting bit of advice or parting thing of something you've learned, the biggest thing you've learned on, on everything you've done. I know it's such a long-winded question, but what would you leave us with? Well, I think that the first thing is we need to set goals. and we need, But when we set a goal, we need to plan because a goal without a plan is only a dream. And plan thoroughly before taking that first step. And once you take that first step, realize that you can do it. Always remember that it only takes one step at a time, regardless of what it is, uh, whether it's in academics, your profession, or out doing your garden, cooking dinner, whatever. It's one step at a time will get you to that, to the to, to whatever it is that you set out to do. And always see yourself as being successful. Always keep that picture in your mind that, yes, I know I can do this and I will do it in the way that I planned. Mm. That's, that's beautiful. And I think we can apply that anywhere, can't we? Any yeah. job, any scenario. That's, that's, life. that's just life itself. And especially these days where um, – the young people coming along have got many challenges that I didn't have when I was growing up. Um, and I realize the I see the difficulties and they, they need to know that they can do it. They need to believe in themselves, put the negatives aside and look at those positives and grab it, grab it with two hands and go for it. And uh, they will be successful because it is more difficult, but they can, they can choose they can choose. They, they mm. have choices. They can choose their own happiness. They can choose their own path in life. They can choose success. Yeah. How important is our next generation? I think, um, yeah, Helen, honestly, you are an amazing woman with amazing achievements. 
but at the at the end of the day, you you were just so down to earth and so Kiwi, <laughs> like we say. I'm proud um, to be Kiwi. <laughs> yeah, wow. Well, I think we all are, and anyone listening that's not Kiwi, I mean, you're awesome too. But um, yeah. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate you hopping on, Helen, and I know this is one of, of potentially many conversations we'll have, but thanks for imparting what you did with us today. Honestly, it's awesome. Well, thank you so much. It's a real honor to that I should be invited. It's fun. Well, I did tell you Helen's an incredible woman, and um, wow, crazy stories. And thanks again, Helen, for, for ending season one with us and been willing to jump on again some stage in the near future. I mean, we didn't cover half the topics we wanted to. Didn't talk about the um, being a national luge champion and representing three countries in international track and field. So many more stories to unpack with Helen. But um, yeah, I just want to sign off the season with a bit of a thank you. We're going to have a few weeks off, as they say. And if you've made it to the end here, well, shot for listening. Um, a couple people I want to thank firstly I want to thank just a few of the people that have been giving me um, the feedback not that I necessarily want to hear but need to hear and so I want to thank Caleb Bazell, uh, Glenn Presto uh, Marty Van Barneveld thanks boys for honestly always chipping in and helping me run ideas by each other and um, you guys have been legends. I want to thank my flatmate Jono, mate. You've uh, you've been my tech wizard when I have no idea what I'm doing on the computer here. So thanks to you, bro. Uh, Kyle Svensson, thanks for the awesome track for season one. You're a legend and um, going going places, that's for sure. Um, I want to thank Waru and uh, well Michael Waru and Brian Tolia Four for hopping on for our special podcast on racism earlier in the season and that conversation. We will definitely continue. Thanks for that, boys. Um, and I suppose most importantly I want to thank everyone that's A, listened been a part of the journey encouraged me and been a soundboard for me and just everyone that's hopped on and shared their journeys Um, it's been awesome to hear your story and hear you get vulnerable with us at times Um, but you guys are legends and I hope if anything I've achieved by setting this thing up so people can be motivated and inspired to live the life that God's called them to live Um, but yeah until season 2 Take it easy. Stay safe. Watch watch some of the ones you've missed maybe over the last couple of weeks. And um, see you soon.